Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Lucas. And this is Double Blind. Much of science journalism today has been reduced to brief stories hiding behind a headline which is just designed to get you to click on it. Lucas and I are trying to change that. We're trying to report on breaking science-related news stories just from the last couple of weeks and do it as responsibly as possible. Which means going into the actual methods behind each study and then having a real discussion about what that actually means for the world today and what it might mean in the future. So if you share that goal, if you're curious, come with us. We think it's going to be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind, going viral, a new test that claims to reveal every virus you've ever had. And photographic memory, the next steps in learning how we learn. Lucas, why don't you start us off today? Thanks, Jesse. I, uh, I, got, I got a question for you, just to start off with. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a personal question. I'll, I'll warn you. Okay, sure. Um, how many viruses have you had? Oh, boy, that is a personal question. I have absolutely no idea. Right? Neither do I. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> Neither do I. And, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a tough question. There are a lot of tests for viruses, and usually... They uh, they focus on one. You go into the doctor and you get tested for a certain virus, usually because the doctor has a hunch that you might have it. Right. Yes, you do have mono or no, you don't. Exactly. So recently, there have been some headlines going around the internet, which I've been really curious about. And they've been saying there's a new test which can detect every virus you have ever had just from a single drop of your blood. Okay, that sounds bonkers. It does. So let's figure out if it's true. <laughs> okay, so... What the heck? Right. So first of all, let's go over some basics. Sure. What is a virus? Virus comes from a Latin word that means poison. And we named viruses before we knew what they actually were because we knew the diseases they caused. Smallpox was once pretty much the most terrifying thing on the planet. Mm -hmm. Later, after we had seen all these diseases, we started to figure out what viruses actually were. Uh. What they are is they're these microscopic infectious agents that require a host to produce. Right. Now, they're not actually living, right? Like, bacteria are alive. Well, well, there's, you know, if you, <laughs> say, if you say what is life, someone will give you a definition of what they think life is, and then you say, but what about viruses? Right. Because they have genetic information mm -hmm. and reproduce and evolve to a certain extent. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. They're not like bacteria. Because bacteria are cells that can divide and reproduce Viruses need to be inside of a cell of something else to do that. So are they alive? Kind of. <laughs> I've heard people say no, and I've heard people say yes. I, I think they're on their own, not alive, right? Because they require life. And if you require life, then I think you kind of aren't life. But they definitely have some features of life. Right. Well, they're also not cells. They're kind of just syringes, right? Like, well, yeah, there are these little compartments for genetic information. What they do is, as like you were saying, like a syringe, they enter a cell mm -hmm. and then they use that cell's own machinery to duplicate their genetic information. Gosh. And they're frightening looking little buggers. Oh, they are terrifying. Yeah, they look like nightmares. Yeah, exactly. And the thing that, you know, always just blows my mind is it's not just that humans have viruses to worry about. Viruses infect all life forms. All animals, all plants, all bacteria, everything is susceptible to viruses. Right. I mean, we're looking at engineering viruses to attack bacteria that hurt us. I mean, that's a promising field of research, but it's terrifying. 
Yeah, it is terrifying. I, th- I believe that was the plot of I Am Legend, actually. I do was, believe so. Was they developed a virus that that destroyed cancer cells, and then it also turned people into zombies. So, viruses. The sort of next basic thing we're going to go over is what do our bodies do when there's a virus in us? Viruses trigger our immune system, which in most cases will then eliminate said virus. Hopefully. Hopefully. There's a number of viruses which are very good at evading our immune system, Mm -hmm. right? HIV is a famous one. Herpes is another one. When our immune system detects a virus, it produces antibodies which are specific to that virus. And the idea is they bind to it and then allow our immune system to identify it and neutralize it. And many of these antibodies will stick around for a long time. That's why when you have certain viral infections, you're then immune to them after. That sort of leads to tests for viruses. Most tests looking for viruses actually look for the antibodies for the virus. Oh, interesting. Because the viruses are too tough to detect. Yeah. And I mean, the idea is if you've been exposed to the virus, then you chances are you have the antibodies. Right. Interesting. Unless, of course, you've had a vaccine for that virus, which is another way to generate antibodies. Right. Right. That's what vaccines do. They poke at your immune system until your immune system generates those antibodies. Hey, come fix this. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so traditionally, these tests often look for one virus at a time. Sometimes they look for a suite of a few viruses, but this one, which is a test called Verscan, okay, Verscan, the headlines at least, not the study themselves, but the headlines claim <laughs> they can recognize every virus you've ever had. Okay, let's get into this. I, I, I sense some discrepancy between the reporting and the research. You know, not, not a whole lot, some for sure. Okay. So let's look at how it works. The idea is you take a sample of blood from somebody. Yep. And then you expose it to a synthesized mixture of fragments of protein. And the idea is these protein fragments, each one tries to mimic a virus. Weird. These are little bits of protein, which to your immune system look kind of like viruses. Right. So it mistakes them for the virus. Exactly. So if this sample of blood contains a particular antibody, it will bind to the protein fragment. Okay. These antibody protein fragment pairs can be isolated through a process which I tried to understand so hard, (laughs) but just couldn't. These pairs can apparently be immobilized using magnetic beads. Oh my God. Which was the exact phrase the paper used, and I could not figure out how that worked. (laughs) Okay. And then you wash away the rest of the protein fragments that didn't bind to an antibody. Okay, that's really interesting. And then using DNA sequencing, they essentially take the ones that are bound and identify the antibodies which are there. Right. And match them with viruses. Really cool. In this study, they tested 569 people and found that the average American had the antibodies for 10 viruses. Okay. Yeah. What were the most common? Herpes. Yep, of course. And the rhinovirus, which causes the common cold. Uh, Of course, yeah. That makes sense. What was the record for the most viruses? Out of the 569 people, two of them had 86 antibodies. Holy cow. So so if the average was 10, two people had 86 viruses they'd been exposed to. So that means they were fighting off, at that time, 86 different viruses? No. That means... So these are just detecting antibodies. Remember, these stick around for a while after the infection. So it means they've been exposed to 86. Okay. It doesn't mean they're currently fighting them off. Okay, so does that mean that most of us, like, I don't know what the exact average was, but... 10. Average was 10? Okay, so that means most of us on average have had 10 distinct, like, what, families of viruses? Species of virus, yeah. Species of virus? Exactly, viral species. Over the course of our lifetime so far. 
And some of us have had 86. <laughs> that kind of leads to the next question mm-hmm. is, does it catch everything? And the answer is probably not. Okay. It can detect 206 species of virus and far more you know, individual strains. The other issue is it doesn't really do a good job of detecting viruses that have short-lived antibodies. So these antibodies, which is the immune response, some of them stick around for a long time. Some of them go away relatively quickly, within a year or two. Right. Those are the ones that we can vaccinate against, the ones where they stick around a long time, right? Usually. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Because then a vaccine is more effective, essentially. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can vaccinate someone and you can keep immunity for a longer period of time. Right. Otherwise, I guess that's when you have to get like boosters kind of thing. Precisely. Okay. So it probably doesn't catch everything, but it does a pretty good job of the viruses we know to be major problems. Right. So, I mean, what's, what's the use of this test? We have this new test. What now? Yeah, what can we do with it? I think the thing researchers are most excited about is it allows them to compare the relatively complete viral histories of populations of people. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. People are really excited to use it as a tool to study the transmission of viruses or to identify populations who have a natural resistance. So this is mostly going to be probably used for epidemiology. Most likely. Now, it could play a role in diagnosis. This would be especially good for viruses that tend to be asymptomatic. So viruses that you have but don't show outward symptoms. What would be an example of that? Carriers. So hepatitis C is a common example of that. Okay, interesting. So, I mean, it would be a good thing for that because it would be the sort of thing you could go into the doctor's office, get one of these tests, and then the doctor could tell you, okay, here's all the things you've, you know, never known you had because you've (laughs) never had symptoms for them. Or maybe you mistook the symptoms, but, you know, the antibodies are floating around your body. Interesting. That does seem like useful information to have. Absolutely. I mean, particularly when you, you know, are thinking about spreading viruses <laughs> and spreading diseases. Right. It's good to know what you have in your body. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's really interesting. So how practical is this test? Is it cheap? Not yet. Okay. As as with, a, it's been kind of a theme of our podcast in the last few episodes. Yeah. Is really cool things that we can do, but it just is not economical yet. Yeah. The researchers are really confident on this one, that they can get it to a clinical scale and to make it, you know, a comparable cost to these more traditional, fewer virus detecting tests really soon. But it's not there yet. It's good to know that they think that. I mean, it'd be pretty great to, yeah, if you're going to go get a test for HIV anyway, you may as well find out if you happen to be carrying anything else, especially if you're going to have a weakened immune system. Precisely. In that case, it's super important. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about one of my favorite areas of science, neurology. So this is this is a really cool new study out of Carnegie Mellon University, and it was published in the journal Human Brain Mapping, which already is just a great Whoa. name for a journal. Totally. This story actually starts a little while back. Okay. This group of researchers was just sort of collecting information and casually studying how people learn information, and they had some subjects learning facts about a new species that had been discovered called the Olinguito. Um, Olinguito? Olinguito, yes. Olinguito. Yeah. And they were, uh, they had the subject's brains under fMRI at the time. And so they were looking at how their brains reacted and responded and where the blood flow went. That's one of those giant like white tube things that you put someone in, right? Yeah, exactly. 
Okay. Um, where we can get detailed information about what areas of the brain are active at any given time. Right. You see all those like pictures of an area lighting up when someone thinks of something. It's super cool. And it's basically the top technology we have right now to determine what's going on in your brain. Okay, cool. So something that they noticed that was really interesting is that when learning the same facts, all of the subjects seem to store the information in the same part of their brain. All right. Which follows through with common logic, but it was interesting to them that it was so precisely in the same area of the brain in every subject. So they wanted to pursue it further and find out a bit more. So they started this study. They got 16 participants and they taught them each information about the diet and the habitats of eight extinct animals. So the key thing being that these are animals that the, the subjects did not already know about. Right. Based on the previous findings, they hypothesized about where the information would be stored. And then they looked, using an fMRI, at their brains while the new information was being absorbed and then recalled. As it turns out, the signature left by each piece of information in the brain was extremely distinct. Really? And, yeah, and the researchers could actually tell which one they were thinking about at any given time. In extreme detail. Whoa, okay, so so what you're saying is d- the different pieces of information looked different on the fMRI. Yes. But are you saying they looked, like, if we learn something about the diet, the diet of person A, the, like person A learning about the diet and person B learning about the diet looked the same? Yes. Whoa, that's insane. And that in all of the subjects, learning about diet looks different from learning about habitat. Right. Distinctly different. That is, whoa. Even though you're doing the same thing, which is just, you're learning a fact about something you didn't know. Exactly. And so if we know the fact you're learning, the researchers can effectively read your mind if you're under an fMRI. Because they can look at what areas of the brain are lighting up and know which of those facts you are learning. Whoa. It, yeah, this is pretty profound stuff. <laughs> Previously, you may have heard of previous studies where, for instance, uh, there was one out of, I think, China, where researchers got subjects to recall numbers while under an fMRI and were able to tell what number they were thinking of with pretty good accuracy based on where the blood flow was in the brain. Wow. Um, Which is pretty cool, but it required a huge amount of recording beforehand of how the blood flow was when they were thinking of these different numbers. Right. Was this was this recording for that individual person or just recording people thinking things in general? This is recording for that indi- individual person. Okay, right. Um, so this study is really significant um, for two reasons. One is that this is learning new information and seeing that when we pick up new information, we already all know numbers, but learning new information that it's all stored in the same place more or less in all of our brains. Right. And the second reason it's really significant is that the information carries over between people, right? Yeah. Um, it's not just learning new information, but it's that we can take the information from this study and then teach you the information while you're under an fMRI. And when you recall it, we can know what you're thinking about. You can read my mind based on a study with someone else. Yes, that's that's exactly oh. it. It's very, very cool stuff. Very cool, but very sci-fi. Yeah. Oh, it's just so interesting. Where was this information stored specifically? A little bit of biology here. So information about the habitat of these animals was stored in two areas, the precuneus and the parahippocampal gyrus. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Those places. (laughs) Right. Totally. There are regions in the lower rear area of the brain towards the back of your head and underside of the brain a bit. Mm. Um, And that was stored on both the left and right sides. Diet information was stored only on the left side in the inferior and mid-frontal gyrus, which is an area near the front at the far left of the brain. 
but that was only stored on the left side. So it kind of gives you an idea of what areas yeah. these things were happening. But they are different areas of the brain that is storing information about the diet of a creature and its habitat. Of, of the same creature. Yeah. Wow. So that's yet more confirmation that we don't store information about a creature all in the same place, that we're, we have these like... Well, yeah, I mean, this is basically getting to what I think is the most interesting thing about this study. Okay. Because all of the brains recorded the information in the same place, mm-hmm. it lends a huge amount of credibility to the idea that the human brain has a universal filing system, right? Oh, that okay. We're aware that all of our brains are really different and neuroplasticity means that brains can change and evolve and recover from brutal trauma and, and they're incredibly flexible and amazing. But there might be a system that we could actually begin to learn with more time and research to give us a really good understanding of what goes where. Right. And obviously, yeah, every brain is going to be a little bit different. But these were so similar that it was a, it was a real a real surprise. So if we figure out that system, yeah, we could we could use an fMRI to read someone's mind. Exactly. Is what I'm is what I'm getting from this. We all we have to do is we have to just do a bunch of studies putting people in these machines <laughs> and showing them a bunch of things, facts that they have to recall, and then boom, we've got a mind reading system. I mean, t- t- like that sounds it sounds like you're being deliberately um optimistic about the the speed at which this stuff's going to progress, but honestly I, that is I am, but yeah. yeah. Like that, that's really not too far off. The the key thing to remember is we need to run a bunch of testing to determine where each very specific piece of information is stored in the brain before we can read it and recall it. It's not like right. we can just look in there tomorrow and figure out where you, you know, store the entire contents of war and peace. We need to figure that out over a period of time first and we need to learn it. Yeah. But then it's looking like we're going to be able to read it once we've learned it. And that is wow. pretty amazing. And obviously it's going to take quite a long time oh, yeah. before no we're doubt. able to glean any useful information from just Here's a brain. What is it thinking about? Um, but this is getting a lot closer to being able to, you know, tell what sort of things people are thinking about. Wow. So another really interesting thing is the way that the brain grouped the information. The researchers referred to the activity shown in the brain while recalling that particular fact. They called it an activation signature. It turns out that similar facts have similar looking activation signatures. So it's not just like all these different signatures in the same part of the brain. The ones that are about things that are thematically similar look similar too. For instance, some of the facts given about these creatures um, for the study, one one of them was that this particular animal chewed on grass with flat teeth. And that fact looked really similar. It had a very similar activation signature to... The fact about another creature, which was that it chewed on tree fruits with small teeth. Huh. So, wow. We don't know that could be a language thing. It could be that the words chewed and teeth are used. Yeah, it's interesting because there's so many components to both those thoughts. Like, I can tell they're similar, but each one has a food, it has an action, it has a tooth description. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's really cool. Some other similar ones are the signature for swallowed small seeds and nuts. Yeah was very similar to the one for sucked large berries into its mouth. <laughs> so now that's one where there's no there's no language that's exactly the same, but the concept is. For habitat, an example of ones that were similar were lived around water in ice caverns, had a really similar signature to lived near beaches in caves. <laughs> so you can kind of see what's going on here, and it's very, very cool. 
one other cool thing that's important to note yeah. is that because this was the first time that this scanning of trying to retrieve information about what someone's thinking about from an fMRI, it was the first time this was done with new information, right? Learned information. And because of this, they were able to determine that the activation signature, that pattern, it remained intact as more similar facts were learned. So they can learn, the subject would learn that, you know, extinct animal A chewed on grass with flat teeth. Yeah. And it has this specific signature. And then they learn that animal B chewed on tree fruits with small teeth. And that did not change the, sh- the shape of the activation signature for the first memory. Interesting. So when you learn something, that thing is then stored and it doesn't evolve as you learn more things. Yes. Um, it, it might over a long period of time and as you learn a lot more, but there's, there's some degree of stability to the shape of that memory. That is fascinating. So what does this mean for the future? These folks are going to keep looking into this for sure because it's really exciting research. Absolutely. They're, they're hoping that with more understanding of this, they can improve teaching methods by learning how we learn better. Right. So how do they how do they intend to do that? Well, if we learn how we absorb information and how we most effectively hold and store that information, hopefully that can lead to some insights, which obviously we don't know yet, about the best way to communicate that information to people so that they're going to remember it. Right. So try to figure out like what an effective learning signature looks like in an fMRI and then try to figure out how to create that best. Yeah, because if we can put a fact in your brain and see what it looks like, that gives us a lot of tools to figure out how best to keep that fact in your brain. For sure. Uh, Another hope that the researchers have is to understand a bit more about how knowledge is actually lost. Um, Okay. They they specifically mentioned looking into degenerative conditions like Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. to understand why information is not stored properly or disappears. Right. See what an Alzheimer's patient would look like undergoing the same test of learning and then trying to recall information. Exactly. And with any oh. luck, we can find ways through that to improve yeah. the outcomes of those conditions. That would be fascinating. Yeah, I think so. Every couple of years, some study pops up about being able to read minds or now we can figure out what people are thinking or dreaming or whatever. Yeah. This one is the coolest I've seen in a long time. And the science behind it seems really sound um, and consistent, too. Like, I love that there's so much consistency between all those participants, that, that those facts showed up the same for everyone. Okay, well, that's it for this week. Um, we'll have links to all the studies we discussed and more in this episode's show notes. Uh, you can find those at doubleblindscience.com. We hope you've enjoyed our adventure into this week's science events and news. Check back next week for two new and exciting stories. So if you enjoy listening to our show, which hopefully you do because we're in the final throes of this episode and I assume you would have tuned out long ago if you did not care, um, please tell your friends about the show, uh, post about it on Facebook, Twitter, whatnot, write our name on a scroll, put it in a bottle and throw it out to sea. Um, or even better, go on to iTunes or Stitcher and rate or share an episode that you like. Also, if you've seen something in the news you'd like us to cover, we really want to hear from you. It could be a headline that's too good to be true. It could be a story that you don't understand or you think that other people around you aren't understanding. If that's the case, give us a shout. You can get in touch with us by email. Our email is stories at doubleblindscience.com or tweet us on Twitter. Uh, our username is <laughs> at doubleblindsci, doubleblind S-C-I. Good stuff. Thanks for listening. Take care.
enjoyed that. Yeah, we can complain. We can argue about that later. I have a lot of problems with that. Okay, we'll chat about that later. Okay. <laughs>